This is episode 456 of the AWS podcast, released on June 27, 2021. Podcast confirmed. Welcome to the official AWS podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the AWS Podcast. I'm Alicia. Great to have you back with a special series about our AWS data heroes. And I'm joined by one such hero today. I'm joined by Elliot Corder, who is head of data at Capsule. Welcome to the podcast, Elliot. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. Now, we've got lots of cool stuff to talk about. And we'll talk about the hero stuff later, uh, because what we're going to do is get right into the topic of data. And, and Elliot, I understand you're building your second data environment of most many for a fast moving company. So you did Equinix Media, now Capsule you're doing as well. And, you know, there's, there's so much here as, as head of data to unpack, but I guess I wanted to, to talk about, you know, when you think in terms of things like data lake and lakehouse approach and data mesh and any other word we can mix up in terms, how do you try and actually make sense of it all and make it fit the business that you're working with? Yeah, so I think I think that's a that's an excellent question. And I think um, you know, over the past few years, I think I might be on over a dozen, you know, kind of ground up platform <laughs> builds on AWS. Let's build a new and, one. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. It's never never a one size fits all scenario in terms of tooling. You know, it's always going to be a, a best tool for the job. To me, there's there's you know, kind of a gradient between kind of like data lake and and through to like kind of data warehouse centric architecture, right? I think in in companies where you have mass amounts of data, semi-structured data, you know, you think about like your ad tech companies, social media companies, you know, the no-brainer is that we're going to approach this as a data lake. We're going to build our platform around uh, storage solution like S3, um, and that's going to fit just perfectly. You get into companies that that are a little smaller. Their data is maybe smaller, a little more complex. They have different uh, SLAs, different consumer groups. You're really going to end up like gravitating towards a more data warehouse centric model. And that doesn't mean that like in a in a data lake environment or a primary data lake environment, you're not going to leverage data warehousing technologies, make something like a data warehouse. Um, you know, the lake house, you know, approach has become kind of a popular model where you might project out a uh, kind of data warehouse or uh, some other analytic store off your data lake. And it doesn't mean if you if you're data warehouse centric that you're also not going to supplement that data warehouse with uh, kind of cloud storage S3 and, and uh, something like a data lake as well. And I think, Elliot, it's interesting, you know, as, as technologists, we we celebrate, love and appreciate all the different methods, patterns, design approaches, et cetera. But ultimately, it's got yeah. to start with what the business need is and, and what those stakeholders want. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, really, when you when you approach building any system like this, it, it comes down to like, well, you should you should ask yourself this question whenever you build any type of system, not just like a, an analytics platform, but like, what are you trying to achieve? Who are the stakeholders? What do they want to do with this data? How do they ultimately want to uh, use the platform? You know, what are what are the service levels and the you know that are required on this platform or, or specifically for your data in an analytics use case? So, and often often it even comes down to just asking, helping people ask, what is the answer you're looking for? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> what is the question you're asking? What's the answer you're looking for? Because, like you said, there's so many ways we can process data now, um, but the right way, quote unquote, <laughs> uh, de- really, you know, is that classic? It depends. It depends on you know what you're trying to achieve, what you're trying to understand, what the sources are, what speed you need. It. There's a whole lot of what ifs that that really come into play here. 
Yeah, for sure. You know, and that's where you got to kind of figure out how to extract that information from from the business. You know, that to them, they don't they don't care if you're storing it in blob storage or, you know, you've spun it up in some highly performant data store, you know, like Redshift or or something a little more bespoke for a real time solution. You know, to them, it's really like, uh, you know, what? How am I going to use the data? What you know? How are people going to interact with the data? Is it okay that we use kind of like a late bind approach and we leave this stuff in S3 and queries take a little longer, but we're going to save a whole lot of money? You know, <laughs> that's a good thing. Um, versus, yeah, versus having that data, you know, ready and and kind of ready to uh, perform like at a, a high SLA and being pre-processed and all the engineering work that that takes to make that thing happen. Not that the prior doesn't take a lot of engineering work as well, but yeah, it's just different. You know. <laughs> That's different, for sure. And I think it's really interesting, you know, during during COVID-19, you were at Equinox Media and you had to manage a data infrastructure during you know, an unprecedented time. You know, it's kind of a one in a hundred year type experience. And I guess we're all as technologists, uh, really products of our experiences and the collection of those experiences. Now that you're looking at Capsule's data environment, how are you thinking maybe differently about it given the the unpredictability that we've learned is 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 uh, a thing in our world now yeah i think i think that's a, a good question i think you know in, in any case there's a certain amount of uh, unpredictability at media you know being like a kind of direct to consumer media solution you know there's a certain amount of unpredictability like what if you you know, your app goes viral and, you know, the good thing what is if you're successful? Get, uh, <laughs> yeah. What if you're successful? Oh my God. What does that mean in terms of like the platform we built? So, you know, thinking, uh, you know, throughout the build about like kind of that extensibility, the co- cost profile, you know, and, and how we'd manage like massive, massive data sets being like a uh, streaming media business, you know, capsule, it's, it's very much like that as well. You know, we are a young company we're nimble, our product offering is is always evolving and kind of, you know, we're doing everything we can to improve the customer experience. So to us, it's, it's just, it may not be always a data a volume problem, but it might be like, how dynamic can we be in terms of adjusting the business need? So, mm, so it's a flexibility uh, yeah, think, problem versus a, a scale problem in some ways. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Which I guess is a really different mental model to, you know, the, the, quote unquote, older or, or um, legacy style approach to data, which was, you know, we create this data warehouse, it's the crown jewels, you know, it has a very slow um, pace of change. I mean, I, I remember working with a, a large bank and, and for them to add or change a field in the data warehouse was a six month project. Um, yeah. It just doesn't work anymore that way, does it? No, for sure it doesn't. And, and you know, like to be candid, I am a data warehouse guy. I do believe in a lot of the principles. I think, you know, something that's, that we've done to make data platforms more nimble in this day and age is getting like a lot more pragmatic, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, worrying a little uh, a little less about like this modeling purity and kind of creating this perfect solution and rather, you know, getting the right answers, creating the right data set, getting it into a table and, you know, coming up with the right controls and kind of processes to mm. make sure that it, that it stays good and perfect, you know, well, for I think everyone. I think you're right. I think I think you can be pragmatic when you have choice available to you. So, you know, if I, if I cast my mind back 20 years, you know, it's like the data warehouse you got was the data warehouse you got and the hardware it was on was the hardware it was on and that was it. And you just, you know, yeah. that's how it was, which which is why it was so um, so structured in many ways. Whereas whereas now we're in a world where, you know, if you get it wrong, you can, you can redo it pretty easily. 
uh, or adjust or like, as you say, make those pragmatic choices or even try stuff that you think, well, this might not work, but why not give it a go? Because you're not doing it on, you know, a few million dollars of, uh, you know, Sun hardware with highly expensive storage on it. Yeah, I think I think that that is absolutely correct. Like, I think the fact, you know, I, I look at the the shift in paradigm from kind of hardware and storage in, in two ways. So one, I think, yeah, you have all these tools at your disposal and you can dip into services and kind of combine solutions and integrate things together to really give you that flexibility. Going back to like your your story about like working at a big bank and it took like six months to add like a field to, to a data warehouse. I think <laughs> to a certain extent, like, you know, we can talk about like kind of... Uh, you know, the fact that data's long been a little backwards in terms of software development practices and, mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. But a lot of that came down to to hardware, right? Like, so if, if you think about, you know, back then, if somebody said, hey, let's let's come up with like an automated regression pipeline for like our data warehouse, let's be able to regress it and test it like automatically yeah. through some test harness. Yeah. Like, well, I don't have another whatever that is in the cost. <laughs> Multi-million cost dollar thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, you know, now we're in a world where, you know, you could essentially spin up a, a Redshift cluster with some fixture data dynamically in your CD pipeline, right, on a pull request and run regression tests against a data warehouse. So I think, like, aside from being able to blend things together, I think the dynamism that you can have in terms of your kind of pipelines and your quality assurance and, and your development lifecycle are also changing that uh, six month by an order of magnitude, right? So uh, that's that's another thing to consider. It's a different world. Well, speaking of a different world, let's talk a bit about Capsule. And and the Capsule website talks about predictive inventory for the pharmacy of the future and so that you don't run out of needed supplies which is kind of a good thing as a as a customer I'm I'm all in on that one um but but I'm interested to understand sort of how you think about that problem domain are you using things like ML and SageMaker or Redshift ML or what, what how are you tackling that problem domain yeah so that that is a that's a good question so I think one thing you'll find at Capsule is there's no shortage of interesting problems to solve that you can solve with technology. Mm. And I'd say not just this problem, but but a number of problems, even even uh, tracking patient uh, medication adherence to, you know, kind of automating the whole experience that you have as a, as a pharmacy is completely like novel, right? <laughs> you know, yeah. most pharmacies still operate like they did, uh, you know, since they were uh, invented. Right? Yeah, yeah. So, so um, true. Yeah, so so Capsule is a data-driven company, and we're we're using data and intelligence on that data wherever possible to uh, you know to tr- try to try to solve these problems both for the business as well as deliver a, a delightful experience to our customers. And when you do that, are you thinking you know bringing the the ML close to the data warehouse? So, for example, using something like Redshift ML, which which lets you deploy ML using SQL commands in Redshift. Or do you think of it as a sort of sidecar experience? Where's your mind at with that sort of approach? Knowing that there are no right answers here, it's just approaches. Yeah, so I, so I think that that is like a really excellent question and, and one that we've been thinking about, about a lot here recently. So, you know, the the approach has been and probably the standard approach and, and through most of my, my career has been that kind of sidecar approach to have like a data science environment, which is essentially sitting alongside, you know, integrated in some ways is definitely for, you know, taking advantage of all those beautiful data assets that we produce, but really like, as you described, the sidecar approach. 
I think that the the Redshift Redshift ML integration or Redshift ML is is incredibly interesting, and I I think that what what it's going to be able to do is you know I think data scientists are you know a different breed, and they they use the tools that they want to use, and and if Python and and kind of building that Python pipeline is is what's familiar. Have it hard to break, but where I see Redshift ML really being beautiful is really for democratizing that amongst individuals, folks who would be uncomfortable with kind of, you know, the arbitrary operations and kind of, uh, to some extent, a foreign language and just being able to work in SQL, which is mm-hmm. is really really tremendous. So it's a it's a service that we are are definitely thinking of in terms of some of that democratization of of machine learning capability. Yeah, it's it's always interesting to me how how SQL has just lasted and and proven its value time and time again. I I SQL was one of the first things I learned when I entered IT back in nineteen ninety, it's a long time ago, uh, which I learned on a uh, DB two mainframe database, and it has just stood the test of time. And I I often celebrate, much to the chagrin of my team, the wonders of SQL and how good it is, and you should learn it, and it's great. Um, but it really is. It's just it just gives you a lot of what you need to get the job done without having to learn a whole bunch of new stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I found, you know, over the past few years, you know, whenever I speak to folks who are in university or, or emerging with degrees, either engineering or, or within kind of the data science and ML professions, and they ask me, well, okay, what, what's the one thing that I should really focus on if I wanted to, to work with you or just to be successful in my career? And I'm like, learn SQL. Yep, <laughs> testify. So many, people, so many people graduate being like kind of like, uh, you know, pandas jujitsus and, yeah. and uh, I thought the SQL skills. And, and like you, I learned SQL back, oh my goodness. Uh, <laughs> Maybe uh, ninety nine, you know, like yeah, it's, it's yeah. 1999, you know, kind of giant dot company, and was given an Oracle book and said, uh, "Go learn SQL," and they left me alone for a couple months. And probably the best thing that could have ever happened to me was yeah. being stranded with an Oracle database and a, and a <laughs> SQL book um, to this day. Uh, but uh, yeah, absolutely, and and you even see it in in kind of technology. If you look at Bark um, as 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 a good example, you know, all of the first optimizations, you know, seem to be towards SQL and mm-hmm. so much of the, uh, you know, kind of usage being driven towards Spark SQL versus kind of the Python and, and Scala extensions as well. So uh, not that those aren't important and people might prefer them, but yeah. but definitely, definitely a, uh, you know, kind of solid investment in SQL as a, as a first language in, in the Spark project. Yeah, so I think there's our first pro tip of the series, which is uh, learn SQL. It will serve you well over your career. Um, but uh, let's let's talk a bit more about Redshift because, you know, one thing I haven't, I haven't really called out that I should have, which is that you've been working with Redshift for 10 years. So uh, that's pretty amazing. We'll get into some of your wish lists for the service down the track. But I guess I want to, to pick your brains on a few of the newer capabilities and, and how you're using them or thinking about using them in your environments. Data sharing, same account, cross accounts, you know, these are newer capabilities. How do you think it will affect the way you structure your data environment and what are some of the benefits you anticipate? Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited about this feature. So like, I've long thought that probably the most inefficient, you know, kind of part of our profession is copying data all over the place that people can <laughs> use it, right? Yep. It's just so immensely inefficient. And, you know, that goes for within an organization. So 
supporting other teams, especially when you have a data warehouse and you you create these assets, right? And then, you know, teams around the company want at them and want to blend it with their own data, which maybe you don't have yet or or is or specific to their line of business. And 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 just the ability to kind of quickly share that within a redshift infrastructure within an organization, re- really amazing. And then another one, you know, like I think that that is really interesting is also kind of this this federation of of reads and creating purpose built Redshift clusters because I think everybody has the same problem that they're using Redshift and they have high SLA production workloads, production supports, and then they have an insights function within their company and they have data scientists. And those data scientists like to fry up the data and, you know, kind of run some really ugly longitudinal queries and blend it with stuff that's on S3 that that might be just huge. So I think the ability to kind of scale that out, you know, is good. More on the infrastructure end, you know, the first use case, I think, is really kind of like an enablement in terms of group sharing data. I think the second is solving like an infrastructure problem that everybody has. You know, I, I've kind of uh, solutioned around this quite a bit, <laughs> you know. <laughs> the Redshift solution. And, and I think this is a, is a great solve. And then finally, in terms of like cross account, like so, you know, cross account is obviously useful if depending on your infrastructure footprint, if you know, you're a multi account, you know, AWS customer, which many people are, you know, sometimes quite granular, you know, that that makes those two things work. But I think it also creates this, this great opportunity of, of companies sharing data and sharing certain segments of data mm. with each other, or maybe a corporation sharing with subsidiaries, right? Or, or which was a, a use case that we ran into, uh, not so much a capsule, but at my time at Equinox Holdings, uh, both when I was at fitness and media, there was always this problem of like, hey, all of like the child companies, you know, wanting to be able to share certain secure pieces of data with each other. And what did we get into? The same problem that people have inside their companies. Okay, we're going to have to export that data, load that data, transfer that data, you know, just having the ability to kind of like have that materialize within other other companies' uh, infrastructure is, or subsidiary infrastructures is just like amazing. You know, really, really great feature, and and really looking forward to uh, to using it. Yeah, it should should be a huge time saver, which is going to be really important. And um, you know, it's interesting having having wax lyrical earlier on about uh, about SQL. I want to talk briefly about the um, the Redshift Data API. And and for those folks who aren't familiar with it, this this is a, a an API that simplifies data access, ingest, and egress from programming languages and platforms supported by the AWS SDK. So things like Python, Go, Java, Node.js, PHP, Ruby, and C++. And it's kind of a different way to access versus using ODBC or JDBC. How do you see it fitting into to the overall picture of, of how to access data in Redshift? Yeah, so so I think <laughs> this, is, this is another great feature, which we're, we're looking forward to using. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about the specifics in our environment, but I think... Outside of kind of data engineering and and kind of that uh, the 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 teams close to, to kind of our data our data team, um, Redshift is a little bit of like a mystery, right? It doesn't behave quite like other <laughs> databases. Not quite um, the same. It looks like a database, but it's not the same. Yeah, like like uh, I've spent a, spent a lot of time, you know, trying to 
explain to you know kind of other software engineers that like you know you have to go to s3 and you have to use a copy and don't you see like it just you know even you know in terms of how you'd interact with it like you would interact with a normal database just seems a little abstract to them and and frankly we want to abstract the underlying infrastructure of the platform from our consumers and, and the folks that we collaborate with. So I really see this as being an excellent feature to give them a way of interacting with Redshift and our platform in a very familiar way, right? People know how to use mm-hmm. APIs, they know how to use REST. They can read the documentation, you know, some would say the APIs are all kind of like a little bit like snowflakes, but, you know, there's a way to kind of navigate that yeah, documentation. Yeah, familiarity, yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's a familiarity and I, I really see that being helpful for providing other teams a way of ingressing data, accessing these data assets in a way that's familiar to them without having to kind of understand the uh, special ways that you'd have to to typically interact with with Redshift, you know, using SQL and some intermediary layer on S3. And, you know, frankly, it's something that we've kind of I've kind of built before in other organizations <laughs> yeah. to kind of abstract this stuff for them. Hey, call this, call this thing. We'll give you a call back when your data is on S3, right? Like, like, you know, just giving, a, you know, a very, a very similar, familiar way for, for folks to interact with data. Well, I think that's a, it's a good call because, you know, if you think about some of the, the things you have to worry about or consider when using a data warehouse, you've got connection management, you've got long running queries, et cetera. These are all kind of anti-patterns, if you like, to your sort of more stateless, transient API-driven architectures. And this kind of helps you use those capabilities in a, in a, in a way that's kind of safe in a, in, a, in a programming environment that's familiar. And, and like you say, you're not having to build around it. You just can use it and it'll work without having to worry. Absolutely. Let's talk a little bit about um, a, a new capability that, that's become available called Aqua or Redshift, AQUA. Now, this is a unique architecture that enables Redshift to run certain types of queries up to 10 times faster than other enterprise cloud data warehouses. Um, the main areas that it really has a big impact in are things like scans, joins and aggregation, the heavy lifting of data movement. How have you found it as a, as a technology and where do you see it applying the most? Yeah, so this is something that we're excited about and we will be adopting. So I'd say that, you know, for the most part, Redshift is as from a performance profile and from from a scalability profile and its ability to handle workloads, it's come a long way. But I think in terms of, you know, kind of those tween queries and large queries where you're doing these kind of rather expensive operations on the data, there's always going to be need for speed. And, you know, you want to be in a place where you can tune your cluster in a way that you can really minimize the uh, cluster resources, you know, kind of minimize the amount of CPU that you're allocating. And I think Aqua is really going to be a feature that can help you make those long running queries through those tween queries much more performant. So it's something that we're definitely looking at adopting. We do have a uh, series of Queries that come from our insights team run more against kind of like a raw and unprocessed data um, and being able to kind of push that down to the storage layer, improve the performance and uh, reduce some of the CPU burden from our cluster is, is really, really interesting. Yeah, I think I think the we don't know how good it can be, <laughs> if I can put it that way, in terms of what people are going to do with it, because it's always things we don't expect. And I, I guess another domain that I want to ask you about is is a preview feature 
which is a new data type in Redshift called the Super Data Type, which has to be the coolest name for a data type ever. Um, and this is a data type that lets you work easily with JSON and other semi-structured data, which is typically not the home base for most data warehouses. So I'm interested. I'm super excited. Yeah, I was just <laughs> speaking to one of our senior analysts today, and we were talking about a new data set that we're onboarding. And, and you know, it's fairly, uh, fairly nested, uh, you know, kind of JSON. So she immediately was kind of a little a little sad that she had to deal with Reggie uh, <laughs> and Jameson. Obviously not uh, one of its, its strong points. So, you know, as an engineer, what we'd have to do is try to, like, make that a little easier on her, which comes down to projecting that data and kind of flattening it and, and kind of trying to extract some of it to minimize the amount of kind of JSON parsing that she'd have to do on Redshift. So, you know, I think JSON has long been kind of like not the the easiest thing to work with in Redshift, and, and I'm glad to see uh, attention being played to uh, to the kind of exploration of semi-structured data in Redshift. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it's it's something that that's going to make a big difference to a lot of folks. And, and maybe let's talk about your own personal wish list. As I mentioned, you've you've been working with Redshift for for ten years, so uh, you've seen it come a long way. And, and as with any technologist who works very closely with technology, it's kind of like a, a love-hate relationship that I think comes along, which is that you, there are certain areas that you just, you just adore. And then because you love it so much, there's things you really, really want to change. <laughs> and so yeah. what, are the, what are the areas for you that really leap out as things you'd love to see happen in the future? Yeah, so, so I, I do, uh, I would say that like in, with the advent of the RA3 instance family, that was a huge leap forward for Redshift, you know, mm. I think, and and I'll get to what my dream would be. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, finally saying, okay, like, you know, there's no, we've got to get away from instance-based storage, you know, like we have customers that are having a lot of trouble, like kind of balancing their, their compute and storage needs, like just about everybody ended up in a state that they're either over-provisioned on storage, over-provisioned on CPU or somewhere in between because they had to balance one or the other. So so really awesome because now we've gotten to a point that the store, the only, you know, if, you, if you're using that instance class, storage is now completely dynamic. You really just have to worry about how you provision your instances and, and statically provision your instances to some regard. And I know there's concurrency scaling and some of these things that we can we can add to to try to make uh, Redshift more like the storage layer. So I guess my dream would be that we get to a world where we, we kind of stop thinking about the instances, mm. right? Mm. You know, kind of one of my favorite services is Dynamo because you just you just use it yeah. and you pay for what you use, right? So I think like my my dream would be that Redshift follows a very similar model. So, but uh, you know, really impressed with the RA instances, the the performance, the the kind of decoupling of storage. You know, I think we can just take that kind of like uh, dare I say serverless concept a little mm-hmm. further, and mm-hmm. and that would be really amazing. Well, clearly, things are moving in, in that direction. Now, Ellie, you've been an AWS data hero for over a year now. And so I'm really interested as to why you think it's important to be sort of part of a community like that and, and what you've learned from some of your peers and, and fellow heroes. Yeah, so I, I, I you know, it's, it's a great program and I'm really, really honored to, to be a part of it. So I, I think um, 
it, it's been really interesting to be able to interact with folks from different industries, different parts of the world, and kind of hear the challenges that they're they're trying to solve and the interesting ways that they're using technology. Really fantastic program. We also have a, a great forum to kind of uh, ask technical questions, volunteer kind of solutions that we're working on. So to me, I think I think it's it's just been uh, really fantastic to kind of see some of the projects, see see the ways that people are mixing together technologies and and kind of thinking to myself, hey, we could do something like that and and kind of explore and and dive deeper into into technology as well as AWS services. So for me, just having having a community that uh, you know can kind of interact with and you know share ideas with has been really great because you know you know in a professional setting you know it's, it's really difficult to kind of understand what's going on with your peers across industries mm-hmm. so i think it's been really 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 powerful to be able to do that in an informal way so yeah, uh yeah. so i think it's been the best benefit and so we have many people who listen to this podcast all around the world and there are different levels and stages of their career etc and if someone's listening at the moment going I really like what Elliot's been talking about and I'd love to be head of data at a company one day. What piece of advice besides learning SQL would you give them? Oh, besides learning SQL. Um, well, I think, I think it all, it all starts out with being a technician and being, being an engineer first, you know, I think, you know, whether you, uh, you know, index higher on architecture or kind of like more on running process, running, running teams, growing out teams, growing talent, uh, you know, having kind of that experience of building things from the ground up is the number one thing. So I, th- what I'd say is get your hands dirty, you know, go out there and, and you know, try to build some solutions, make those mistakes. We all learn from our mistakes and, and, and just keep working it, you know, become a master at your craft, you know. So, um, yeah, I think I think just going out there go and, and, and being open minded. <laughs> Yeah, go and do it. Just do it. (laughs) (laughs) Elliot, thanks so much for joining us today on the podcast. Oh, awesome. Thank you so much. And thanks everyone for listening. We do love to get your feedback. AWS podcast at amazon.com is the place to do it. And until next time, keep on building.